We've dropped out of the great conversation. We've lost our ability to converse with the rest of the natural world. We're talking only to ourselves. He complained, we're not talking to the rivers. We aren't listening to the wind and stars. We've broken the great conversation. Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Exvangelical Podcast, where being labeled a heretic is a good thing, if it means refusing to conform to toxic, harmful expressions of faith. We address your questions about God, politics, how we got here, and how to move forward. Nothing is off limits in our conversations with scholars, spiritual seekers, and activists in our quest to uncover the heart of faith. We're your hosts, Melanie and Gary Ellen, and this is Holy Heretics. Before we get started, we have something brand new that we wanted to tell you, our listeners, about first. For so many of us who really find ourselves questioning the faith we were given, the Bible really becomes a sticking point. Can we even trust it? Is it inerrant? If it's not, does that mean we should just totally throw it out? Should we even read it anymore? If so, how do we read it? And what about all the different translations? I mean, the questions can become overwhelming and really confusing. And so because of our own questions, we started digging and then decided to turn all our research into a live course that we're calling Making Sense of the Bible Post-Deconstruction. And we will be debuting it in July. Because we want this course to have time for questions and dialogue, we are only opening it up to our Patreon supporters. And it's on a first-come, first-served basis. So between now and June 30th, 2021, if you become a monthly Patreon patron, we will reserve your seat for the course. So head to our website, which is holyheretics.org, and click on the button that says support on Patreon, or head straight to patreon.com slash holyheretics to become a patron of any amount and reserve your spot before they're gone. Now let's get started. For many of us in the deconstruction world, we have a desire to walk away from toxic religion and from fundamentalism, but we have no intention of giving up faith altogether. And we still believe in Jesus, and many of us are just longing for a deeper, more transformative faith, one that really goes far beyond the rigid confines of religion that we were taught. And so that's why we're delighted to have Professor Belden C. Lane with us today. He has tapped into some unique ways to feed his soul and and to connect with the divine. So we are hoping to glean from some of his experience and wisdom today. Professor Lane is a Presbyterian theologian who teaches on a Jesuit faculty at St. Louis University. His interests include the relationship between geography and faith, wilderness backpacking in the Ozarks, the magic of storytelling, desert spirituality, exposing students to urban poverty through the Catholic worker community, and the poetry of Rumi. He's written many books that cover these topics, including one called Backpacking with the Saints, Wilderness Hiking as Spiritual Practice. And this book has spoken to my soul in ways I didn't know I needed. And he also, in you know all his free time, leads initiation rites through Richard Rohr's program for men as learners and elders in Albuquerque, New Mexico. So (laughs) welcome, Professor Lane. We are so honored that you would join us today. Thank you, Melanie. Happy to be here. So, Belden, um, Presbyterians and Jesuits, those, uh, <laughs> that's, that's some interesting faculty meetings, I would assume, right? <laughs> yes. You know, uh, I, I was uh, 35 years, I'm, I'm retired now, uh, Professor Emeritus, but I was 35 years with the Jesuits, and it was a delight. Mm-hmm. A, a stretch for, on both sides, but uh, mm-hmm. a, a wonderful connection. Wow. All right. So Melanie talked a little bit about your background, but we're going to dive deeper into that. In particular, uh, for many of our listeners who are somewhere along the process of deconstructing their faith, potentially leaving faith altogether based on their frustrations with um, either evangelicalism and or the institutional church uh, at large. And we have found and we have heard, uh, not only from our listeners, but also ourselves, that this generation is looking for something deeper, uh, something more transformative, and potentially even a new way of experiencing God. And that's why we're 
just incredibly delighted to to speak with you because you have found that path. Um, so can you give us maybe a, a Reader's Digest version of your faith background and what brought you to studying uh, mystical Christianity, the Desert Mothers and Fathers, as and in particular um, the whole concept of experiencing God through through nature and through wilderness. Yeah, uh, I was born outside Orlando, Florida. Grew up there, uh, and when I was nine or ten, a revival tent, traveling revivalist, was put up across the street on a vacant lot, and. Uh, my parents and I went. Uh, that led to the founding of a Bible church down the street. I'd not had a religious background before then, but I was fascinated by this story of Jesus and uh, started, to write, started to write my first book when I was 10 years old in a uh, school spiral binder that I had at the time. So I, I grew up in Youth for Christ meetings. I went to Moody Bible Institute after high school. But the interesting thing along the way was that I never entirely fit in. Uh, most people I knew could write in the front page of their Schofield Reference Bible the date and the time when they gave their heart to Jesus, when they were had a conversion experience. And I never had a single one-time uh, event like that. I always feared that I might be left behind at the rapture, that kind of thing. Hmm. And I, I also loved the natural world. I grew up on a lake with cypress swamps nearby, wandering through pine forests, loving everything wild. And I was told that we weren't supposed to be attached to this world. We sang a gospel song, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond them. <laughs> and yet that never really set right with me in in my own experience, God was as real in creation as God was in church. And I couldn't imagine God wanting to burn up this earth at the end of history. Uh, God, for me, was dancing in the flight of red-winged blackbirds and hmm. the smell of orange blossoms. Uh, I, I needed wild things. Hmm. And so I, I didn't find all of the God I wanted and needed, in, especially in the particular religious background where I grew up. Hmm. So then how did you move out of that religious background and into something different? Yeah, uh, it was a long journey. And uh, putting myself in uh, places where I might be vulnerable, dangerous places like wilderness seemed to be I, I, I had an urge for that. I, 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 it was the way the Spirit drew me as I look back on it now. I, I think I can say it better in a story. Go for uh, it. Once upon a time, there was a Hasidic Rebbe whose little boy began leaving the synagogue each morning during his daily prayers. He went to wander in the woods. The boy loved being alone in the forest. But the father was concerned, not just because the boy neglected his prayers, but because the woods were wild and dangerous there in the Carpathian Mountains where they lived. So the rabbi asked his son one day, why do you go out there alone in the forest? I noticed you've been doing it a lot lately. And the boy replied, I go into the woods to find God. Ah, oh, that's wonderful, said his dad. I'm glad you're searching for God, but you know, you don't have to go anywhere special to find the Holy One, blessed be his name. God is the same everywhere. Yes, the boy answered, but I'm not. God oh, wow. may be the same everywhere, but I'm not. That, that, I, I love that because the boy knew there was something different about him when he was out in the wilds, out among tall, dark trees, out in the desert, wherever that might be. He was more receptive and open, more vulnerable out there. He knew that the landscape took him outside of himself and into the presence of God. And somehow I've known that all my life, uh, that need to risk myself to solace and solitude and to find God as richly there as, uh, as within the community. That, that's still tremendously important for me. Hmm. Well, one thing that I, uh, as I started listening to your book, um, I felt my evangelical hackles kind of going up <laughs> was like, Everybody needs nature, sure, but like, how is that a spiritual practice to go out into the wild? And of course, you explain it so well in your book, but for those 
of us who haven't read your book, how would you explain that to them? How is the wild and, and the wilderness a spiritual practice? Yeah, it's it's interesting, too, that I uh, how I was drawn into that more deeply. I did a lot of camping as a kid, but I didn't start backpacking as a spiritual practice until I, I turned 40 or so. And and that's interesting. That's that's when I'd gotten tenure at a Jesuit university uh, here in St. Louis, and I needed to be grounded I, again. I needed to get out of the ivory tower. Uh, I I talked about God in the classroom, but I I needed to spend time with God in mm. the woods increasingly. And it's curious to me that that that's that midlife. Carl Jung says that that's when you make the shift from building a tower. Uh, creating a persona, uh, finding a career, et cetera, to jumping off the tower, uh, <laughs> descending into uh, a deeper sense of knowing who you are and who you really want to be, uh, turning from the outer world of accomplishment into the inner wilderness of self-knowledge. And so I, I was drawn out there. John Muir, uh, that old, crusty, post-Presbyterian <laughs> Lover of the High Sierras. He said, going out, I learned, was a way of going in. Uh, so I, I too needed the time for silence and solitude. And backpacking as a spiritual practice offered this. For example, it taught me the importance of traveling light, which is really crucial in one's spiritual life as well as your everyday life in a consumer society like ours. There's really very little I need in my life to be happy. Everything I need to eat, sleep, and stay warm can fit into the 30 pounds or so that I carry on my pack. Hmm. Another thing that, that the trail teaches me is that there I have to pay attention. I have to be alert. I have to be mindful in a way that's not quite so necessary back at home. I, hmm. I need to keep attending to the trail where it might make a turn to what the weather's doing. Uh, to what hot spot may be rubbing uh, on inside my boot. So there's a, a mindfulness that I, I have to practice there that uh, isn't so needed back home. And, and best of all, I think wilderness is an excellent place for making the necessary mistakes to get me to where I really need to go anyway. And that's learning to trust when I suddenly find that I'm not in control. And there are many times out on the trail alone when you realize, oh, my goodness, how did I get here? And uh, learning to take a deep breath to pray and to find a way. So in, in, a, in a variety of different ways like this, backpacking, it seems, has been a uh, optimal spiritual practice, along with others, of course, in, in, in my personal life. So in your book and in your writings, you link your desire to flee into the wilderness with a similar historical reality um, that's very a very ancient practice in the church. And it's embodied by and lived out by the Desert Fathers who, way back in the fourth century, uh, left the center of culture, left the center of Christianity uh, because it had become incredibly corrupt as the, the church got in bed with the state and these desert fathers began to live on the margins of the empire out in the wilderness. So if I'm not making too uh, many uh, assumptions here, it seems like that those desert fathers and those mystics have had an incredible impact on your spiritual journey as well as just on your wilderness experiences as well. Is that true? And, and if so, how? Yeah, it, it definitely is true, Gary Allen. Uh, and, and I'm intrigued not only by the desert mothers and fathers reacting to the dominant culture, but uh, what they chose instead uh, and, and why they chose the wilderness, why they cho chose the desert uh, west of the Nile. Mm. Uh, I, I had years ago an opportunity to hike through the desert around Mount Sinai. It was one of the great experiences of my life, the mm. beauty and, and, and a kind of terror along with the, the austereness and loneliness of that landscape was amazing. Uh, it, it takes you to the edge where you're not in control, where you have to find resources that you never imagined you had. And so the, the desert fathers and mothers chose this kind of geography 
because of the challenge it offered. Uh, I, I, I love it to put it plainly that the, they knew the desert didn't give a shit about them. It was utterly <laughs> indifferent to the frantic needs of their ego. And, and that was profoundly important for them. They knew how uh, ego-centered living had been the core of everything back in the society they'd left. And how do they find something different? And so this desert indifference teaches them a practice of spiritual holy indifference in their own lives. They called it apatheia. And I define that as a holy indifference to unimportant things. It's a wonderful desert discipline, what, mm. what many of us need more than anything right now. Mm. Let, me, let me give an example. Uh, once there was a young man in Alexandria who had heard so much about these wonderful desert fathers. And so one day he decided to walk into the desert to try to find them. And he came up to Abba Macarius, the abbot at one of the monasteries, and he said, Oh, Father, I want to be a holy man, uh, just like you. Uh, I, I've heard so much about you amazing Desert Fathers. Uh, can you teach me how to be a holy man? I'm, I'm only here for the weekend, but I, I, I really want to learn. <laughs> you can imagine Macaria smiling, uh, but taking him seriously and saying, All right, uh, you'll see the cemetery just over the rise uh, there. I, I want you to go over the rest of the day and abuse the dead for all that you're worth. I want you to yell at the dead people, throw stones at their uh, graves, uh, call them rotten uh, thieves, uh, terrible people who made the wor world worse for having lived, uh, and then come back and tell me what you heard. Well, the guy young man think this is a, this is strange instructions on learning how to be a holy man but he does as he's told spends the rest of the day cursing uh, the dead people uh comes back that evening and macarius said to him well what they what, what they say to you out there today oh, i didn't say anything the the young man said they were dead as doorknobs oh that's interesting macarius replied why don't you go back tomorrow and spend the day praising them I want you to call them apostles and saints and righteous men and women. Think of every compliment you can and uh, just say everything nice that you can think of. Well, the young man, uh, once again, did as he was told, returned to the cloister that evening. And Macarius asking this time, what did they say today? Well, they didn't answer a word, replied the man. Nothing more than yesterday. Ah, said Macarius, they must indeed be holy people. You insulted them, and they did not reply. You praised them, and they did not speak. Go and do likewise, my friend, taking no account of either the scorn of men and women or their praises, and you too will be a holy man. <laughs> you see, what, what Macarius is inviting him to do is to learn, what do you ignore, and then what are you able to love? Those are the two great desert questions. They had left the desert because they knew the highest worth back in the city was given to consumerism and militarism and the careful cultivation of one's reputation. And so they came to the desert to learn not to care about what was unimportant, so as to begin to care about what really mattered. And, and, and that countercultural dimension of, of their powerful spirituality, of, of ignoring what isn't, doesn't matter and loving what really does. That, for me, is the core of the, the, the life I want to live, the years I have left. Hmm. That's, that's beautiful. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm speechless of how beautiful that is. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Oh, you know, they're, they're full of stories like this. The, the sayings of the desert fathers and mothers are utterly amazing. I can't recommend them enough, mm -hmm. as, as uh, you know, Gary Allen. Yeah, we're my wife and I are currently reading Thomas Merton's uh, sayings of the desert fathers. Mm. And... We're just spending, you know, some very meditative, contemplative time on on each one of them, um, and then we're also reading the Gospel of Thomas to our kids. Ah. And you know, there's so many beautiful kind of riddles, if you will, mm -hmm. that Je yeah. that Jesus posits that you kind of that keep you up at night. Very similar to that same story. So we've lost a lot of those stories and those um, anecdotes. I think in the church, we need we need yeah. to get them back. Absolutely. Well, that that's actually kind of something I was thinking about is like until until I read your book, I'd I'd heard like 
you know, passing mention of the Desert Fathers. And rarely was it the Desert Fathers and Mothers. Um, and it was just kind of like, I don't know what that is. Uh, and, and it's like a history that I feel like has been lost in the modern evangelical church in the U.S. And so for people who have never even heard of them, like, where do you where do you start? How do you I, I don't even know names, honestly, because this is not something I was ever taught about or it was never mentioned. Um, so how do you even get started learning about them? Yeah, I'd recommend two books, uh, one by Benedict Award, a wonderful woman at Oxford. Uh, she edited The Sayings of the Desert Fathers. And the other, you're, you're right that, that we hear so much more about the fathers. There are about 107 desert fathers that we have sayings from, and only about uh, eight or nine desert mothers. Mm-hmm. But there's a lovely book that Laura Swan, S-W-A-N, wrote a few years back called The Forgotten Desert Mothers. And uh, she uh, tells some of their stories, and they're amazing to our the, the work of historians today, of course, is to recover the voices that have been lost. And uh, in a world of patriarchy, uh, the women's voices were not heard, and uh, they certainly deserve to be here. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, so similar along those same lines, um, you often talk about the importance of risk and vulnerability in one's spiritual life. Um, and then you tie that into uh, how being taken to the edge physically also takes us to the edge spiritually. Um, and one of the ways we can be taken to the edge spiritually, if, if we don't always have the time to be taken to the edge physically, is by reading, quote, dangerous books. Um, and so I- I'm wondering, do you consider these books by or books that have the sayings of the desert mothers and fathers dangerous or if not what books are dangerous and then also i mean i feel like i was raised to read only the books by approved authors or listen to sermons mm-hmm. by approved pastors um cuz we don't want to be led astray after all so so why why is it important to read these quote unquote dangerous books yeah, that's a good question. Uh, and, and these are dangerous books, these desert fathers and mothers. They, uh, they are stepping, like, like Thomas Merton, who uh, steps back as a monk in a, a Kentucky monastery and is able to reflect on the society that he's left and offer a critique and a, a loving critique that, uh, that's, that's what draws so many of us to him. Uh, the insights that come uh, and that really challenges us uh, in hearing him. Catholic theologian David Tracy uh, once said in talking about books generally, that classics, the, 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 the great classics of uh, literature and uh, of uh, theology and, and uh, anything uh, ought to be labeled dangerous books because they threaten to change your life. Hmm. I remember when I was at Moody Bible Institute, for example, I read Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov, hmm. uh, maybe still the greatest novel I've ever read. And uh, it rattled my cage. I, I loved the character Ivan, who was outraged that God could allow so much suffering in the world. And ideas like his didn't fit into my neatly tied up theology at the time. Hmm. Uh, and and I, I know I still need to be shaken up and taken to the edge. I, uh, I, I can trust the Spirit of God speaking in me, helping me interpret whatever I read in a critical way and uh, yet in a way that opens me to new things that are, uh, that's incredibly important. Uh, and that's, that's what wilderness is all about. It, it, it represents the risk and vulnerability that, that real growing faith always demands. So I, I love the fact that uh, the German theologian Johannes Metz could speak of the dangerous memory of Jesus. Uh, the Jesus story, he said, is profoundly upsetting. Uh, if, if we really uh, let it sink into us, uh, it makes us question everything we might have thought about God in the past. It calls us again and again to the realities of love and the injustice and suffering in the world. And so 
For much of my life, I felt that I had to be safe in a secluded world, had to be protected, sheltered from anything out there in the world that would be dangerous. Because, you know, I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. And I know God wants to challenge me to make me uncomfortable with new things that will break me into a deeper understanding and acceptance of God's love for me and the world. And I, I guess if you don't have this kind of both countercultural quality and openness to your culture, uh, that if that's not a part of any authentic spirituality, it's just going to be a feel-good private practice. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, I'm going to guess uh, that you're a, a fan or at least have read uh, cultural historian and author Thomas Berry. Um, and is that true? Am I making? Oh yeah. Too much? I, okay, I figured you were. <laughs> I figured you were. So, in one of his his books, I'd love for you to respond to this because I read this several years ago and it really shook my entire understanding of God um, and the whole notion of of theism. Uh, Barry writes. He says, "The natural world is the larger sacred community to which we belong. The universe is the primary revelation of the divine." the primary scripture, the primary locus of divine human communion. And he seems to be pointing to a, a reality that we live in a wild, sacred universe. But most of us didn't, didn't grow up with that truth. We, we grew up with the idea that God was contained in the, in the cathedral and not the forest, that mm-hmm. the only path to God is up the center aisle of the church as opposed to down the, the dusty uh, trail in the wilderness. So how do we recapture that whole concept of God being both uh, transcendent and imminent and very much alive in the tree and the grass and the flower and this beautiful holy world that we live in. Yeah, it's it's all a matter of recovering a sense of awe, a, a sense of beginner's mind to be able to see the 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 world. You know, I set out in the gazebo in our backyard with my dog this morning and just stunned on this beautiful uh St. Louis morning in the spring. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the birds, the new leaves all around me. Uh, and Richard Rohr, my, my teacher and dear friend, uh, says that the, the incarnation is really at the heart of our Christian faith, my Christian faith. Uh, and that in a deep sense, the first incarnation is in creation itself, the, the very creation of matter, of thisness, thereness, what would just drove Teilhard de Chardin crazy, the wonder that, that there is something here and there's something so beautiful, and that in the Big Bang, as it were, uh, how many uh, million years ago, that, that God suddenly brought into being matter. Mm. And then uh, the second incarnation, as it were, as uh, Christians understand it, would be the coming of God uh, into matter squared, as it were. Uh, God entering spirit, entering into the matter, into, into flesh, uh, and inviting us to that union of flesh and spirit, matter and, uh, uh, divinity that is, uh, at the core of what Jesus wanted to, uh, do to invite us to be sons and daughters of God, uh, as well. Uh, I, 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 I think when I was growing up, we forgot how many times God said in Genesis 1, it's good, I like it, <laughs> each mm. of those first six <laughs> days of creation, uh, and, and the wonder of, uh, of the earth. Mm. Mm. I, you know, I also think that it's a problem of ecclesiology, that our ecclesiology needs to be challenged today. We, we assume that the family of God is limited exclusively to human beings. Uh, we're the only one God really cares about. The rest of the world is simply a backdrop and window dressing for the human drama. And that's why Thomas Berry and I do love him. My latest book, The Great Conversation, Nature and the Care of the Soul, uh, is, is about his saying, we've dropped out of the great conversation. 
We've lost our ability to converse with the rest of the natural world. We're talking only to ourselves, he complained. We're not talking to the rivers. We aren't listening to the wind and stars. We've broken the great conversation. And that's a great loss. How can we become more inclusive to recognize that, uh, that all of reality is embraced in God's, uh, the, the great arms reaching out uh, in God's love? So when we ask, how can we be more inclusive? I love it. A few years ago, I think it was the Methodists. They started to ordain pastoral dogs to participate in worship and the ministry of the church. Uh, I, I have a uh, That's amazing. dog oh sitting at my foot right, feet right now. Uh, yeah, my enjoy. dog would not qualify. I know that. <laughs> no way. Well, no well, way. Some, so, some dogs do. They, they would have them process down the aisle with clergy at the beginning of the service. They would, they'd even have a stole of their own that they'd wear around their necks. They'd lie in the chancel as worship uh, proceeded. And then they would make pastoral calls uh, on the sick and shut-ins during the week. And it's, it's, it's a, a great uh, symbolic action of embracing all of God's, the family of God, in the praise and wonder that the psalmist is always saying, you know, the trees are clapping their hands, the mountains are singing for joy. Why do we leave them out? <laughs> mm. 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 I, just, I just feel, oh, I love that so much. I want to go to that one of those churches now. But <laughs> I also feel myself going, uh, or at least my training going, but, but, but humans are at the top humans. Like if it comes down to it, we have to choose humans because God gave us special. I don't even know what, but we're special Status, in some maybe. way. Yeah. And so, it, you know, like, and it's our job to harness and have dominion over dominion's a big word right now in the super yeah, conservative yeah. world. And so like, wh what do, what do you say to that? Like, well, as Jesus said to his disciples at the Last Supper, that being at the top uh, means being a servant to others. Mm. And uh, so, so that there is a, an important sense in that humans bring something distinctive into creation. They bring consciousness. They bring an ability to uh, be mindful, to observe, to give praise, to celebrate, to, to put into words, to be uh, poetic. Uh, to create poetry as a way of uh, inviting the rest of the world into a deeper consciousness and, and celebration of, of God's presence and reality. And so it's, it's not that we exercise a power over, we exercise a consciousness with and for, uh, so as to uh, love the earth in its... Uh, Vulnerability today. I, when when I go hiking, I I do a lot of hiking in southern Missouri. It's in the lead belt, and I will pass through mine tailings and uh, mm. polluted streams, and uh, the earth cries out. Mm. And uh, so my the consciousness I bring, hopefully in my writing, in in how I speak, I speak to and for the earth, in calling us to a a common community. Uh, in which we all belong, everything belongs. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. One thing that it's, it seems like in order for us to have this communion with, with God through wilderness or through nature, we just have to be insanely intentional. Um, because I'm thinking about my own experience. Um, my husband is, he's, I think his childhood was a lot like yours, Belden, where he was out in the woods all the time running around. He just loved it. And now he's um, an alpinist and he ice climbs. And I mean, he's just always looking for new ways to get outside. And I, on the other hand, am very much not like that. <laughs> I mean, I spent a lot of time outside as a kid in New Mexico. We didn't have forests, so we played with tumbleweeds. But um, I was outside, but like the idea of going into these places that are scary and that will require something of me that I don't know if I even have it in order to get out of it <laughs> alive, uh, that's terrifying to me. And it's not something that comes 
naturally to me at all. And yet through my husband, I've been able to experience that. Um, so for people who who might not be so inclined um, or, or maybe just don't even have the opportunity right now, how yeah. how can they have this similar experience? Thank you. That that's that's wonderful. Uh, I I'd, I'd want to insist that, that there is wilderness all around us. We don't have to go to wild places as such, like your husband <laughs> climbing on ice. Yeah. Uh, as 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 marvelous as that m- might be, uh, Louis Agassiz uh, was a naturalist. He taught at Harvard over a hundred years ago, and uh, one fall he came back to classes and he told his students. You know, I spent the summer traveling and I got halfway across my backyard. That <laughs> that sense of attentiveness to the wonder and awe that is everywhere around us. What I have done often in, in classes is to take students on uh, a micro hike where they have a tent stake and a, a 15 inch length of string. They put it anywhere they want in the grass outside the classroom building and spend a, the rest of the class period just studying what's within the, the diameter of mm. that little circle. And it's amazing, utterly amazing what you find uh, of beauty and wonder and shock and surprise uh, right uh, in your own backyard. So I, I don't think, I should have said this a long time ago, and I appreciate your bringing it up. It's not a matter of going into uh, explicitly dangerous territory. It's a matter of making yourself vulnerable to everywhere you are. And there's wonder uh, in every backyard. Thank you. Mm. Thank you. Mm. <laughs> well, you know, even for the most ardent conservative, um, we even see this whole notion of finding and experiencing the sacred in the wilderness uh, in, our, in our narratives that are so beautiful in Scripture. Um, so this isn't some new age thing, you know, like this isn't something that you've invented. I mean, we can think of uh, Hagar finding God in the wilderness. And, and actually, it was a very different God than her taskmasters, mm-hmm. masters had made out to be. We see Jesus going into the wilderness to experience a an initiatory experience, uh, almost a vision quest, if you will, before he launches his ministry. We see Moses in the burning bush. So. So these are not um, anti-Judeo-Christian concepts. They are rooted within the very fabric of our ancient tradition. And, and yet, as we said earlier, they, they've almost been lost. So is there a practical way that we can help people maybe tiptoe back into that? Um, you know, maybe I'm not ready to go out into the wilderness per se, to be completely vulnerable, but I want to experience God in nature. Um, and what, what's maybe a first step to, to integrate the notion of the sacramental incarnational understanding of creation for even the most conservative among us? I, uh, one of my most important teachers is a hundred-year-old cottonwood tree that uh, lives in the park across the street from my house. I've known him for 30 years. Uh, there were originally two great trunks growing out of his roots, but uh, one of those was struck down by lightning in a fierce storm 30 years ago. And I go over to the huge 12-foot-high wound inside of that tree. I go there every night to pray, to be still. I, I lean into the hollow of this old tree, and it's like standing in the wounded side of Christ. Uh, there's a, a deep sense of comfort, of being held uh, in, in this tree. And the, the tree, strange as it sounds, has been a means of helping me reconnect with the Jesus of my childhood as never before. So what, what I often suggest to people as a general or beginning spiritual practice in getting out into nature is to take a walk in a park nearby or even in one's backyard, uh, stop at a particular place and uh, as if you recognize you're going to cross a threshold and ask at that place, ask permission to enter, knowing that you, you want God to be present to you and you want to be sensitive to that presence in that specific 
intentional way uh, as you cross this threshold uh, and ask for permission to come and for, and, and for ability to really be open. And then as you move through that, to find a tree that you might be drawn to, maybe a wounded tree, and to sit with that tree, to let it tell you its story, to in turn then tell your story of the woundedness in your life, to uh, thank the tree when you're done, to come back to that same place, that threshold, to give thanks. Uh, I, I don't know how many people I've worked with who have found have incredible stories to tell about trees uh, hmm. and, and their personal faith experience. Hmm. Well, I feel like I feel like we could ask you so many more questions. I have many in my head right now, but um, we are needing to wrap it up. So I want to ask you the question that we try to ask everyone. Um, so for you, coming from the more fundamentalist background and um, now <laughs> as a Presbyterian who worked with Jesuits for so long and through all these experiences, um, not only with different faiths, but also with um, the natural world. From, from your vantage point, what gives you hope when you look at the future of faith? Hands down, it's my five-year-old granddaughter, Ellie, <laughs> the, the only grandchild we have, whose uh, daddy, our son, died of cancer this last year. Mm. The last six months have been some of the hardest of our lives. Mm. And she is learning. We are learning. Uh, slowly but surely. With Julian of Norwich, that all will be well. Mm. Uh, I don't understand why at 41, my son was suddenly struck down with cancer. Uh, why Ellie... Little Ellie would come last week and say, Babu, that's what she calls me. Mm -hmm. uh, what if Mama should die too? Do I have to live in my house all alone? Mm -hmm. And this beautiful child uh, struggling, wanting to be loved, wanting not to be abandoned, wanting mm -hmm. to be sure that, uh, that uh, there is hope and looking to me and Grammy, Trisha, my wife. And, and the love, the trust that child has, uh, it, it, it just blows me away. And so that gives me hope more than anything. Also, remembering standing on the beach at Clearwater, Florida, uh, looking out at the dark red setting sun uh, over the Gulf of Mexico, as people all around suddenly spontaneously broke into applause at the sheer <laughs> wonder of it. Uh, there are so many things to give us wonder and so many things to give us hope, even in the midst of uh, suffering. And so, you know, it's, it's curious, as I was thinking about preparing for this, uh, talking with you, in many ways, I am more evangelical. I'd call myself more evangelical now than I ever was growing up mm -hmm. because the faith I now have is a good news that mm -hmm. God isn't into vengeance and punishment and judgment. Uh, that's not the first thing to be said about God. And the first thing to be said about me is not original sin. But the first <laughs> thing to be said is that God is love and that God made me and us in love. That God doesn't inflict suffering, but God walks with us through suffering. Mm. Uh, that is evangelical. That is good <laughs> news. <laughs> Amen. Amen. <laughs> right. Hey, well, first of all, th thank you for uh, trusting trusting us and this space to share that sacred story and and to share that pain. Um, it was a, a true honor to hear you uh, talk about your son. And um, thank you. Yeah, we could hear that in your voice, and just we want to acknowledge that. Mm -hmm. Thank you, thank you for that. That was uh, incredibly vulnerable and beautiful at the same time. So. We, we do want to end our time with um, a little bit of more uh, levity, if, that, if that's okay. I know we've had some uh, sure. deep, deep conversations here about, about beauty and wonder as well as loss. Um, 
but based on your background and based on your passions, um, especially in relation to uh, backpacking, is there a, a place that you want to go backpacking that you just haven't been to yet? And, and what would that place be? Oh, there's a place. It's, it's one I have been to many times, in fact. Uh, I, I've been invited to go back to Ghost Ranch in New Mexico this coming August. They're celebrating the 30th anniversary of the movie City Slickers with Billy hmm. Crystal. <laughs> and uh, I, I'm uh, asked to speak about that, to talk about the hero's journey in connection with the, the film, uh, which is a, a uh, fascinating one about wilderness experience. Uh, but I, I, I've really been drawn to canyons again. Uh, the, the canyons of the Red Rock country there at Ghost Ranch north of Santa Fe is just utterly beautiful and haunting. And so there's, there's a lot that I need to pour out in terms of what's been in me these, this last year and a, a return to joy, uh, holy folly, the mystery of the holy fool that laughs uh, with joy on the graves of death, like the early Christians did amazingly. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the desert calls me again. So, uh, Hopefully, I'll be going out there uh, early in August. You're you're speaking my language right now because um, most of the exploring that we've been doing in Utah lately is to the Slot Canyons. Um, yeah, and I, I, I've you know I've been in the mountains. I've been um, to the beach. I've been to a lot of places, and there's something about the Utah desert that just, I, it's it's beyond words for me. Um, so you're speaking my language. I'm actually, um, from Albuquerque. I don't know if you knew that. Um, so it's cool that you ha are doing those programs with Richard Rohr and also, you know, spending time in New Mexico. So I'm wondering out of all the exploring you've had time to do in New Mexico, what your favorite place is. That, uh, that, that area around ghost ranch and Christ in the desert, uh, monastery. Mm. Mm -hmm. yep. uh, that Thomas Merton said was the uh, most sacred place in America. Uh, he stopped there on his way to Asia. Mm -hmm. uh, that that whole uh, area it's it's along the, uh, the 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 trail that goes from north to south, uh, the Continental Trail. Oh, yeah. the Continental Trail. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Mm. Yeah, that 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 place is uh, incredibly powerful to me. They, I can tell my wife she she can spread my ashes there. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So, in all your wilderness adventures, have you ever gotten lost? And if so, what what happened to you? Yeah, I I I've often been the most times I've been lost is in my head, where hmm. I've thought suddenly I I hadn't been paying attention. And nothing looks familiar. And I backtrack on the trail and it still doesn't look familiar. And the panic begins to uh, build up. And uh, I, I think, oh, my God, I, I'm here in the middle of nowhere. And uh, what am I going to do? And to sit down, uh, to uh, calm myself, to be still, and then to begin maybe to make concentric circles around where I've been. and, and to, to keep connecting with, uh, with, with uh, the point where I left off. Uh, in, invariably, I'll uh, discover, you know, I hadn't gotten lost at all. I hadn't been far away from uh, where, I, where I'd been in the least. It was all being lost inside my head, hmm. uh, if that makes sense. Hmm. It does. Yeah. Uh, so there's a famous furniture line called Belden Lane. Do you also dabble in furniture design? Is that you? No. Uh, my, my name is interesting. My name's Belden Colonel Lane. Uh, my full given names. Uh, the first two, Belden Colonel, are uh, Cornish names from a great, I'm named after a great grandfather in Cornwall. Mm. And they mean, Belden means the beautiful green hill in. Uh, Cornwall, uh, Kerno is the uh, Gaelic uh, Cornish word for Kerno for Cornwall. 
So I am a Green Hill in uh, Cornwall uh, by, by name. <laughs> Went there with family years ago to try to find a place. I found a hill that I could call my own. But it's interesting, wow. you know, to be named after a place uh, where you've never been is an intriguing thing in my life, hmm. given my love of mm -hmm. geography. Mm. Corn Cornwall is absolutely beautiful. Oh, um, yeah. All right. Our, our last question. Um, I noticed in an article you'd written that you referenced some of your favorite authors, um, including Marcus Borg, uh, Bernard of Clairvaux, Dorothy Day, and then that kind of radical heretic, uh, John Shelby Spong. And when I saw that, I thought, oh my gosh, this is a kindred spirit who is just further along the path than, than myself. So if you could recommend one book or author besides uh, your own to introduce our listeners to the sacred divine nature of the world, what, what would that book be? Hmm. Uh, I, I love Teilhard de Chardin, the, uh, the heart of matter, and even more, the divine milieu. Mm. Uh, th this Jesuit who, who had a stunning mystical sense of God's presence in matter, in the, the world. Uh, I, I, I just love his work. Mm. Mm. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, Professor Lane, this has been um, incredible. Thank you so much uh, for your words, for your heart, uh, your tenderness, and your invitation for all of us to step outside to uh, go beyond uh, the safe confines uh, of our world, both both physically and spiritually. So for anyone who wants more, uh, where can they find you or your books uh, online? Uh, uh, Amazon. Uh... There's six books I think available there. Uh, that that probably be the or, or uh, Google sites uh, Belden Lane. Yeah, thank you. And it's mm -hmm. been a delight, uh, Melanie and Gary Allen, talking with you. Mm -hmm. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Mm, thank, thank you, you so it's much been, for joining been us. An honor. Yes, we we have loved it so much, and I just feel like just listening to you, my soul is being spoken to in ways that I didn't experience elsewhere. So thank you for that. Mm, absolutely. That is it for this week. Don't forget to sign up for our live digital course, Making Sense of the Bible Post-Deconstruction, before registration closes on July 1st. Head to www.sophiasociety.org and tap on the announcement bar at the top to get all the details and learn how to register. That's S-O-P-H- IASociety.org. This episode was produced by the Sophia Society. Music is by Faith and Foxholes, and sound engineering is by Joshua Mudge. 